What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Ask LFC podcast. It is good to be with you all today. My name is Harrison, Worship Arts Director here at Lake Forest Church in Huntersville. And this is Mike Moses, lead pastor. Good to be with you all. Today's subject of our Ask LFC podcast is what's up with the millennium in Revelation chapter 19. What's up with that, man? I mean, 20. What's up with that? I should be accurate. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to talk about what's up with that. <laughs> we're right. going to, as promised in the sermon, I'm going to go just a little bit further. I'm not going to get overly technical. Uh, a little bit further into the view that I p- presented, the interpretive lens of amillennialism. Um, and we may touch on the other couple of views. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. But first, we just did something fun up in staff. We were updated on something that would be good for you guys to hear. Yeah, it was just really neat. We heard from our uh, benevolence team, uh, Catherine Greenberg, who's on our staff here, uh, helps lead that up. And, and she just kind of gave us an update in the spirit of, as we said on stage, even on Sunday, uh, Christmasing the heck out of Christmas. This mm-hmm. is just a continuation of that. Although part of this we do all throughout the year, but our benevolence team uh, Catherine just updated us, first of all, on, on what they've been able to do throughout the year. Of the, the benevolence team manages the funds that are given, given freely, and in some cases over and above by ministry partners into our benevolence fund. So it's an off-budget thing. It can't be spent for anything except for hmm. um, urgent or emergent uh, physical needs that ministry partners or someone close to them may have. So it's just cool because there's, there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes all throughout the year of people reaching out to the church in some kind of uh, dire situation, need of help, and and we're really able to tangibly be the hands and feet of Jesus because of the way that uh, the way that our church is so generous. And even, uh, we may hear more about this publicly later, but just a really cool uh, kind of charge the Benevolence team gave us as a staff to be able to just with our eyes and ears and seeing what's happening, uh, in, uh, and be able to continue to bless some folks around us and giving us some means to do that, which is really cool. Well, because we take, we initially fund the benevolence fund annually, uh, by using a large, we respond to whatever the size of the offering is at the Christmas Eve services. And we take a large portion of that, um, to fund it baseline. And then throughout the year, we have different ministry partners who they just they want to give some of their over and above offerings and they dedicate it to benevolence and so it <clears throat> it's funded in the tens of thousands mm. every year and um, uh, this year you guys have been extra generous. I I keep saying we keep saying hey you're a generous church. That's not hype. That's reality. And so we're here at the end of the year and we have an extra well funded benevolence fund and so the benevolence team instructed the staff. Hey, get your eyes open and go over and above looking for people who won't ask for help, but who could use a hand up of something extra right here at the end of the year and to report that back so the benevolence team can meet unexpected needs, needs that someone didn't ask for for whatever reason, but they have. There, there may be hard parts, and there are hard parts. We're very blessed in what we get to do, I think, Mike and I think you'd agree and it comes with challenges some of those being that we you know uh, we walk with people a lot of times through their best times and and their worst times but man uh, having an opportunity like this 
does not get chalked up as one of the worst parts of what we get to do here no. at the church. It's <clears throat> no, pretty it's awesome. Not. What were a couple of the Suzanne and Jeff Cook updated yeah. us and Mitch on a few of the ways the Benevolence Fund has been used recently? Do you recall a couple yeah, of those yeah, just, examples? Just, because that's really all of our joy. I know it's awesome. I mean, I know uh, frequently we we get reached out to by. Uh, some families that are in a dire need and they just they might have a a utility bill or something that they literally can't pay they're about to lose their power tomorrow can we help and they fill us in on the situation and and what's cool seeing behind the scenes on all this just so you guys can hear it that there's a there to to make sure that this is being managed and done well the the benevolence team they look over they review mm-hmm. each individual ask and look at the merits of it and the situation that people are in, not to be stingy, but right. to be sure that they're being good stewards. And, of, and generally, there's a total limit of contrib- of a gift to mm-hmm. per family per year. Yeah, so there, uh, that was a really neat one. Uh, there are there are some folks that are uh, kind of associated here with the church that do some work around the church, not on our staff, mm-hmm. but uh, Lake Forest was able to. Uh, bless them over and above for just saying thanks for the ways that you help our church throughout the year. And 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 uh, a, they told us a, a family was just completely moved to tears yeah. and overwhelmed with. They were like, "Are you joking? Is this real?" Yeah. <laughs> you know. So yeah. uh, just really cool stuff. Catherine mentioned one family uh, overburdened by extreme medical debt, and mm-hmm. our benevolence fund is not designed to take care of things like a tens of thousands of dollars in medical debt or pay off someone's mortgage. But because they're in debt with that, uh, they had other, in keeping up with it, they had other needs uh, such as power bills, Mm. um, car insurance that would not be met at a certain, they were at a constriction point in their income. I think most of us have experienced that at some point in our lives. Um, So what joy that we get to reflect the generosity of God and his creation Initially, what a generous thing to conceive of this universe, conceive of life, and then actually bring it uh, to reality and share it with us. And uh, what generosity to give his son after we had turned our backs on him. And how great Hmm. that we all get to to become more like uh, God uh, by being generous and a little more so this time of year. I agree. Well, um, Mike... Let me turn the page with this. I don't know. Have you ever seen the, this is a a horrible way to do this via an audio medium, but have you ever seen, there's a meme of this guy, he looks real frazzled and he's got a big board behind him and it has all these strings and connections and pictures. And he's like explaining some crazy theory. Like you can see, he looks like a, 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 a psychopath a little bit. If you've ever seen that before, <laughs> something like that. Yes, yes. I, you painted the picture. Well. I, I, f- I feel like at times from the outside looking in, especially yes. if you are a newer Christ follower, when someone begins talking about uh, the book of Revelation, particularly and what happens at the end of all this stuff, there are times where it feels a little bit like that guy to me where we're like, okay, there's seven seals. That's this. So connect the string to that. Yeah. And you see the picture yeah. come and together. The thing with the tin horns. And then here's the dragon. All right, stay with me. Stay with me. Yeah. So that, that's what it can feel like uh, sometimes. So maybe you can help out, which you, you did a great job with on Sunday. Maybe we continue unpacking here a little bit that uh, some of this is not quite as crazy as it feels like or, or as intimidating with uh, – 
there are, I took a class in, in college about this, uh, an entire class about it. And one of the main takeaways I had that I thought was interesting, like a lot of points of theology when you get studying them is um, there are some really smart and well-meaning people who believe a lot of different things about the Bible who are Christians. Yes. Yes. Uh, So, so launch off from here and you talked about on Sunday wanting to share a little bit more, another layer or two down into what you already started unpacking. Yes. And uh, I, I made up my mind ahead of time preaching this sermon about the whole book of revelation that I was going to err on the side of the people who would, who would kind of go with a little bit more of a lecture style sermon uh, than normal, and so I, w- I was like Sunday after Thanksgiving. I'm we promised the whole book of Revelation. I'm just going to outline the whole thing um, and dignify people's intelligence, uh, uh, respect people's intelligence, yep. and sort of go there until I got to the core theological lens, interpretive lens. We um, we call that hermeneutics in theology, the hermeneutical lens through which I view Revelation. And particularly the the Protestant Protestant Christianity and Reformed or Presbyterian Christianity in particular today is the leading are the leading proponents and uh, um, of the amillennial view of the interpretive lens for the Book of Revelation. And so um, I think the most think, consistent persistent thank yous I got from people were number one those who had been taught it as a scary book. There's all these weird things that you should kind of be afraid of. Because if they happen in our time, this is going to really suck. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, a lot of people thanking me for painting it as a book that unveils, not hides the truth. It's not God's not trying. I didn't say it this way. It's been taught as though God's trying to set this mystery or this puzzle that is only one person's going to get the Rubik's cube, and the rest of us will be will feel stupid the way I always did when people were doing Rubik's cubes. Um, so that was freeing for a number of people to hear it that way. People also appreciated m- my relentless insistence in the sermon on the primary theme or two. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It starts with him. It ends with him. It's all affected by him. And victory and the new heavens and the new earth are assured because of his resurrection, which was historical, and his coming, his second coming, which will be in history as well, and so that that if you have anything but hope and an incur and a motivation for perseverance when you leave off reading Revelation, that um, that's that wasn't the way it was intended to be read. If you walk away with fear or discouragement, or man, I can't understand all this. Why am I even trying to do the Christian life anyway? Because probably you have to understand all every little jot and tittle here to be a good Christian. And I can't do that. Um, so those were kind of my main goals, but then I, I thought ending this the Bible in a year, again, I would dignify everyone who's leaned into the Scriptures in a, in a fresh way, in a new way, in a more sustained way, which has been a lot of our church, and, uh, and kind of go there a little bit with the, the theology, um, not the theology, like I said, the that's a new word for today. Can you say hermeneutics? Hermeneutics. <laughs> did you learn that word in your undergrad Bible I, classes? I did, yes. Yeah. I did. Hermeneutics it simply is the interpretive lens through which you you uh, approach any 
part of Scripture. And when I just learned that word, it, I also learned that whether we acknowledge it or not, generally we, we do bring an interpretive lens to Scripture. No, none of us just shows up completely... Um, in a vacuum. In a vacuum. That's a good way to say it, yes. Um, so, uh, now I came around to an amillennial view of Revelation sort of through my own study of all the different views, and then I was like, this, I think this one is the most true to the text. And really, when I read the whole thing, front to back, especially when I read it that way, and don't just pick out one or two things. Hmm. Um, and it was only later, Harrison, that I, that I learned that it's actually, because I, I didn't come from Presbyterianism. I, I came into it after seminary for various reasons. It was only after being like, oh, there's a word for how I see Revelation, and, and this helps me see it more clearly when I read how real scholars you know, have put this together, um, and it's amillennialism. Oh, and it's the majority view mm. in the Reformed and, and or Presbyterian view of the world. Okay, so back up. What we are talking about today is uh, a subset of eschatology. Eschatology is the field of Christian theology which concerns the study of last things. Uh, last things like it's the study of Christ's future return, the, the resurrection of humanity, the rapture, the final judgment, eternal blessedness, eternal punishment, all those things. And upon all of what I just said, there is general overwhelming agreement of all Christians of all times about those things. Um, that all that will happen. The Bible teaches it. It will happen. It is secure because of Christ's victory um, uh, on the day of resurrection on Easter. But with the particulars in eschatology, and especially the particulars in the book of Revelation, there's been a wide diversity of thought among Christians from the earliest centuries of the church um, who hold to the authority of scriptures equally. Um, and so the, the, the three eschatologies promoted by theologians throughout history can be organized into three general systems. I'll just mention three of them. Amillennialism, uh, which, by the way, St. Augustine in the late 300s was the first most clear articulator of this. Um, Postmillennialism is a second one. And premillennialism, which popular evangelical culture reflects premillennialism the most, most uh, frequently. Now, each of those terms... It has it is delineated by a prefix with the word millennium. Uh, millennium is the Latin word mil for thousand and annus year. So millennium. Um, now the, here here's why the three different main Christian views all all of these by the way they're messed up if they don't recognize the others as faithful uh, followers of God's word who just seem to interpret it through a, a bit of a different lens. Um, so they're all faithful. Um, but the reason it came around the word millennium is because over time, the real differentiation of how you interpret the particulars in the book of Revelation, not the 
not where it all goes, mm-hmm. <laughs> not the primary plot points, but the particulars the, it, it is, is how you interpret Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And especially the timing of the return of Jesus with reference to that period of a thousand years in Revelation 20. And so amillennialists expect no literal millennium. The prefix ah means no. So it's a little bit of an oversimplification, which I'll get to. Amillennialists expect no, no literal actual thousand years reign right before some other stuff happens. Postmillennialists believe Christ returns after a period of millennium, millennium that is quite literal, though not exactly tied to a thousand years, that the thousand years is more symbolic, but there is a significant period of time in which the righteous are reigning uh, just before Christ returns. And so postmillennial, as you know, the, the prefix post means after. And then premillennialists believe Jesus returns before the millennium, um, pre or before millennium. I'm going to, t- today in, in our format here, um, I don't, I'm not going to make the time, Harrison, to really detail carefully all three of those views. And in the premillennial view, to be fair, there's really two distinct views. So you could say there's four. Um, and by the way, if you're looking for a, if you want to take this further, there's an InterVarsity Press book called The Millennium, Four Views. And the author's last name is, uh, can you look that up? Uh, the Millennium, Four Views. It's either Clowney or Kraus. And that was most helpful to me some years back when I was reexamining my own view. And four different Bible teachers teach the four different main views, and then they all come back and critique each other's teaching, and they interact back and forth. It's a really helpful way for somebody who loves God's Word and wants to be generous toward other Christians. Is that it? Uh, yes. The Klaus? Me- the Meaning edited. of the Millennium, Four Views by Robert Klaus, C-L-O-U-S-E. Awesome. You would do really well. Uh, you know, put that in as a stocking stuffer to someone you love. Um, they'll They'll kiss you on the lips for That's it. That's right. Um, you'll probably have to put that on your list if you want to get it as a stocking stuffer. But um, one of our men's uh, Bible study leaders, he's led one of our men's groups faithfully for years, maybe over a decade, Friday mornings, Philip Howard. He immediately shanghaied me after the first service with super on it, intelligent, well-read questions about this and that. Like he was... Uh, Philip is the kind of person who uh, questions and observations from his own study. Philip is the kind of person. Philip, that would be the book for you to take this further. Okay, so on millennialism, let's 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 um, get at this for a few moments. Um, on millennialists do not expect a literal millennial kingdom. So uh, Revelation nineteen. I'm sorry, I keep saying that. I, by the way, I made a couple of factual errors on Sunday in the first sermon. In particular, I misspoke a couple of chapters where this detail or that was connected to the other. And I, I attributed this passage to... Um, no, I, I attributed the New Heavens, New Earth passage to the wrong chapter. I corrected that for the second service. Um, 
can you just Harrison give us just a, a bit it's it's just the first several verses it, yeah. there's only six verses that talk about this which is one reason why Christians give each other um space for grace on how we interpret it because it's just a small passage yeah all right here's the passage it's revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 and i saw an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain he seized the dragon that ancient serpent who is the devil or satan and bound him for a thousand years he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended after that he must be set free for a short time I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Yeah, so the plain reading, if there's no symbolism here, which, uh, again, there's almost no one who doesn't agree that there's— John is employing symbolism lavishly throughout the book of Revelation, but if there's zero symbolism, then literally— uh, Satan is. This is before the end of history, before Jesus' second coming. Um, that uh, Satan is bound for a thousand years, and only those who've been martyred or beheaded for their faith, for not accepting the mark of the beast, they come back to life alone. Whatever number that is, they reign for a thousand years. It's good times, good righteous times, uh, and then all the other stuff happens. Then Jesus return. Th- then Satan comes back out there's a period of heightened tribulation and persecution and suffering then christ returns but but uh and the new heavens and the new earth so that's uh, amillennialism view of revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 was that i think yes although amillennialists expect no no literal thousand years millennial kingdom this doesn't mean amillennialists I keep. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, millennialists deny a millennium entirely, as the terminology might imply. Um, uh, amillennialists interpret the millennium as describing the present reign of the souls of deceased believers with Christ in heaven hmm. and the present reign of Christ in the church and in every believer on earth. And the present um, march of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation, which will happen and cannot be thwarted by Satan. Amillennialists understand the binding of Satan here as being in effect during the entire period between the first and second comings of Christ, though ending shortly before Christ's return. And we teach that Christ will return. He's reigning in heaven now, and he will return. All will be resurrected unto life or judgment, uh, and then the new heavens and new earth begin. Um, uh, so, millennia, here, so here's the bottom line. Um, because of recapitulation of both 
tribulation and reigning with Christ, the, the millennium, uh, right? Remember, I taught that Revelation 6 through 20 is the symbolic over and over rumination upon every generation's version of experiencing tribulation because of the gospel and just suffering because of the fallen world and because of the battle between God and Satan. And in each cycle, chapter 6 through 20, there's the there's reigning of Christ in the church, in the believer, and there are triumphs. Um, so amillennialists then, therefore, say we are presently living in the millennial kingdom, um, which is characterized by the experiences of both gospel victory. All of us have seen that in our church and in our life, gospel victory. And it's simultaneous with gospel suffering for the gospel. Um, we've seen strident examples of that. Some of us have experienced it in our own lives. So now this obviously means that amillennialists interpret the 1,000 figuratively. Uh, as for example, so here, there's great precedent for this throughout the book of Revelation, but let me just take one. Earlier, during all those chapters, there's this moment. I remember when I grew up, at one point I was under one pastor who pointed to this passage in the middle of Revelation that says, and only Mm 144,000 were uh, humans came into the kingdom of God. And he's like, y'all, there's only going to be 144,000. There's billions alive today. You're probably not one of them. Um, and I, I was shaken. That, that's an example of misteaching yeah. <laughs> the book of Revelation because it's clear if you read it, it's talking about a couple of specific instances, but it's symbolic of the completion of the tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel times another number times another number was that number. So there's an example of um, there's almost no one, I mean, I shouldn't say that, that's probably, I just don't run in these circles. Who would contend, oh, no, no, that number is literal. 124,000 only will be in heaven. Yep. So there's an example just a few chapters ago. John and the angel who gave him the vision are using words uh, symbolistically. And so this thousand years, millennialists and postmillennialists take as, as symbolic. Well, why a thousand? Oh, let's see, where did I... Well, well, a thousand. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say while you're looking that up, I've I've heard explained before, which makes a lot of sense, that uh, at God repeatedly chose human authors to to be the the medium by which God's word was written down. So uh, I've heard it explained before that uh, clearly John was seeing visions and experiencing a lot of things that he he would not quite have language or words or or comprehension to process or understand in literal language so there are a lot of times where he's like i'm gonna do the best i can to describe what in the world i'm seeing right yeah. now <laughs> and yeah, i'm uh, that's right. you know it, it, we'll see what comes out true and but the, but the 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 language of, of a thousand why a thousand years the, the number 10 was a number of fullness. You're aware there's specialness in the Bible to the number 3, to the number 7. 10 symbolized uh, fullness. And so this is 10 times 10 times 10, which is fullness times fullness times fullness. There will be a fullness 
to the reign of Christ in believers and through his church spreading the gospel. And when that fullness comes is when he will return, just like the gospels begin with this phrase. When the fullness of time had come, Mary gave birth to a son and named him Jesus. It was the fullness of the time for the first coming of Christ. And so there will be a fullness of the second time for the second coming of Christ. An, an example in another part of Scripture of a figurative or symbolic use of the number 1,000 is Psalm 50. We're all familiar with this. God is the, uh, he's the God of the cattle on a thousand hills. Mm-hmm. Uh, the psalmist was not counting a thousand hills. He wasn't, I'm in Judah. I just counted exactly a thousand hills. That's what I'm going that's to write great. down. I mean, that's, that's sort of silly, but it's an example um, to be sure, this is a different type of symbolism in Revelation 20 uh, with more specificity to it than that in Psalm 50. A couple of other scriptures for why we amillennialists interpret this binding of Satan as being all during this time. Satan, there, uh, um, Jeremiah, uh, I'm sorry, uh, James 4, 7 teaches Christians, and by the way, we have some construction going on, uh, the, the HVAC problems um, near our studio here, so just if you hear some background noise, that's, yep. that's what it is. Um, James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee you. Satan has been bound during this period. He is incapable of, uh, uh, of overwhelming a Christian who does not resist him. Hmm. Uh, we believe that I believe that Christians cannot be possessed by the devil because you have the Spirit of God in you, which is the Spirit of Christ. Uh, Revelation twelve eleven uh, says that the saints have conquered the evil one by the blood of the Lamb and by the Word. Now, first of all, if we're going to take a premillennialist's um, literal historical timeline of Revelation 6 through 20 and it progresses through the whole thing, this is all the way back in chapter 12, verse 11. And it says the saints have already conquered the evil one. Wait, 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 wait. This is just in one of the, remember, three cycles, seven judgments. Somewhere way back in there, the saints have conquered the evil one, the dragon, Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word. And so we're living in that. He's been conquered by the blood of the lamb. That is when... Satan was bound. It's described by the Apostle Paul throughout the New Testament as victory over the evil one. And yet, it's this both and, isn't it, Harrison? Hmm. Um, Because Paul also says the evil one is still the prince of this world. So he is bound and yet unbound. And so hold, hold with us that tension. But all the way back in Revelation 12, 11, it says saints have conquered the evil one by the blood of the Lamb and by the word. That's eight chapters before Revelation 20. And so this is an example of the recapitulation of both the tribulation and the millennium happening throughout those juicy chapters. And and you'll have to have heard the sermon for this to make much sense, um, I think. So let let me take this a little further and see if I can fill out the picture in a helpful way. Um, amillennial uh, again um, amillennialists believe the God and, and the t- scripture teaches this the gospel is victorious because Satan has been bound by the victory of Christ at his resurrection he defeated the evil one um, 
rendering Satan incapable of preventing the spread of the gospel. Um, Yet, Satan is not utterly powerless from persecuting the church. Now, just before the end, we think this, this fits with the rest of Revelation and other prophecies in the New Testament. Satan will again be permitted to deceive the nations more, and persecution will increase dramatically. Uh, Jesus speaks of that. When Jesus speaks of the end times, he never gives any hint of anything like a thousand-year millennium. He just speaks of persecution. You will be living for me and proclaiming the gospel. That's him. That's the gospel reigning through you. And he says there will be persecution. And he says it will all have a great uptick toward the end, uh, and there will be an antichrist. And so... Christians are awaiting the visible bodily return of Jesus Christ, which will bring an end to all of our suffering and that of the world. The second coming, according to amillennialists, occurs at the same time as the general resurrection of all people to judgment and life, uh, and a public rapture of the church uh, who goes to meet Christ in the air and returns to earth with him. Then Christ judges the world and finally ushers in the eternal state. Um, now, here's, here is, this is when this made, began, my interpretive lens of all of the New Testament, uh, Harrison, came into focus, and I began to gravitate toward the amillennial understanding of Revelation, because it fit the rest of the New Testament for me. Hmm. And it's, it's this, and so it's a dual lens, think of it as glass, think of hermeneutics as interpretive lenses or a pair of glasses. And it's these two lenses. It, amillennialist understanding of the New Testament and Revelation is the tension of already and not yet. Hmm. The lens of already Christ is risen. He's reigning on the throne, and he reigns in the heart of believers. He reigns in the church. He reigns in the spread of the gospel. And the not yet. Satan hasn't given enough leash to persecute, to tempt, to destroy Steal, kill, and destroy life, Jesus said. And there's the not yet. Not yet everyone sees Jesus for who he is, Lord and Savior, and is living in, in the full reality of that. That is the key to it. To there, now, there are, uh, that is the key to an amillennial. I, I would say that's the interpretive lens to the whole New Testament that leads me to therefore interpret Revelations chapter 6 through 20, not just 20 through an already but not yet lens. Which I think really meshes well with a lot of what Jesus had to say about the kingdom of heaven mm-hmm. being at hand. Yes. You know, like he 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 said, the kingdom of heaven is here. And you're like, okay, where? And you're like, well, we're building it together right now. We're gonna keep building it. It's here because we're building it and it's gonna we're 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 actively in it. We're making it the kingdom of heaven it's by a being mustard seed. You don't yet see the full flowering of mm-hmm. it, but it's here. So and it will be this great tree. Yeah. So I mean that 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 makes well a lot of sense to me in terms of that other aspect of Jesus' teaching. Because you look around and you're like, well, he said all this about the the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is here, and, and he talked a lot about the kingdom. Um, so yeah, yeah. And so amillennials. Um, believe that Christians presently live in the inaugurated kingdom as Christ reigns from heaven in our hearts and in the church. Yet, 
We know that we're waiting, we're yearning, as Paul says in Romans 8, for the kingdom's full realization, the full freedom of the children of God, as Romans 8 says it, when Christ will reign on earth in the new heavens and new earth eternally. In fact, that, that we're reigning now, First Peter, Peter says, here's your identity, church, Christian. You are a kingdom of royal priests. <laughs> now, <laughs> that's reigning, and that is uh, religiously being in the presence of God now. Now, the inaugurated kingdom, we still endure tribulation and suffering but also victory as the gospel spreads. You know, one victory of the spread of the gospel of this church. Our first uh, missionary that we ever took on in our first year, we started giving 10% of any monies given to Lake Forest in year one, our little tiny little pile of money. We have a little bit of that pile. And we started supporting our first missionaries, John and Christy Grimes. And they were sent, this is 1998, they were sent and have lived their whole lives to a very obscure mountain-based people group in South Asia. That's as specific mm. as I can be. Who didn't do, do not have literacy and are of a, a religion that's a, a various mixture of uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and other Eastern, other and nativistic, their own religion. Never heard of Christ. And so that, that couple's given their lives with Lake Forest support to, first of all, gift this people group with literacy. They now have a written language. It's happened. Done. Wow. That's happened in 23 years. Uh, beautiful. What a gift. And number two, to gift them with the New Testament. I th- after all that time, there are two or three books of the Bible. They've translated the first two or three that they thought would speak the gospel most clearly clearly to that culture. There's an example. Satan can't stop that. If someone takes the gospel to a people, because every people group, every tribe, nation, tongue will be in Revelation. That is spoken clearly several places. So that's an example of us being a part of, that's a millennial reigning of Christ right there. There's a new people that are learning about the good news of Jesus and reconciliation with God Mm. Um, in our time. Through, through our efforts, through ministry partners of Lake Forest. <laughs> They've moved their work back to stateside and transferred their membership to a church where they're doing their translation work, but they're still precious agents of Lake Forest. Now, another key point in this view, and then we'll bring this to a close, is the old understanding of Old Testament prophecy, Harrison, um, especially as it's interpreted by the New Testament. Um, amillennialist. This this is a this is one of the main distinctions between amillennialists and premillennialists. Premillennialists are most visibly represented by the uh, uh, what's it called um, left behind the left behind books books yeah. and and teachings such as that. Yeah, there's there's good teaching on it. Um, but the main difference, one of the main differences between the two is amillennialists hold that the promises and predictions made to Israel, David, and Abraham in the Old Testament are fulfilled by Jesus Christ and the church during our present age. Premillennialists think that they go back and parse out, uh, let's see, this prophecy we think is to the future Israel, this one is to the church. I don't see anything like that in the Old Testament prophets, Harrison. 
it's to the people of God in the future and the future of God. <clears throat> and so uh, the clear, to me, the clear teaching in the New Testament, particularly all of Paul's writings, and those of you who are familiar with the New Testament, you'll be familiar with this. He talks about the church as Israel interchangeably or as the new Israel, um, as being grafted in uh, as a vine, uh, onto the original vine of the people of God and now becomes the vine. Now, to be sure, Harrison in Romans eleven twenty six, Paul asserts, yet, and he's talking about how the Gentiles and the church now are where God is spreading his fame and the good news of Jesus uh, in the new covenant. But he stops and he addresses ethnic Israel, ethnic or religious Israel, however, however you want to say it. And he says, yet all Israel will be saved. Hmm. And I believe, Harrison, that every Jewish person in history will be saved because God, once he's adopted a people for his own, he does not unadopt. <laughs> They're his people. I think that's what that verse means. However, it's open to interpretation. Sure. But however, so uh, amillennialists think that all these Old Testament promises have been fulfilled in Christ, ultimately, and in the church. And there are other Old Testament prophecies which are clearly about the final times, the great day of the Lord, which is when Jesus returns the second time. And so amillennialists point to passages which teach that the consummation of history occurs at the second coming of Christ, not with something else happening after his second coming, but an eternal state following right after that. And so, again, that's, that's sort of a... a, a and, and we point back to Jesus, who speaks actually more than most of us know. I have, I'm a, an example of a pastor who hasn't preached enough on Jesus discussions about eschatology and end times. And he always speaks of one great day, not a whole bunch of battles and then a great day and then a great rain for a long time and yeah. then another great day. That's mm. super clear, which brings us to the rapture and why I want to be left behind, which I think I'll make our subject of next week's podcast. I like it. Part two. Part two coming Part your way. Two. Well, um, in closing, I want to be clear. The question of the millennium is an in-house family debate among Christians, and it requires diligent study. If you're, if you're going to dispute about these things with other believers, which I would read it for your own edification not to dispute with others, but if you're going to, make sure that you have diligently studied it and you have a willingness to engage robustly in the biblical text and its interpretation with others who see it differently. Because uh, the differences here on how to interpret Revelation 20 and therefore the rest of the book of Revelation are not a matter of heresy, heretical Christianity versus orthodox Christianity. Um, uh, There are lots of different views of this, but still... When studying Revelation and eschatology, it's, it's too easy to lose sight of the call of Christ in Revelation, which is to live victoriously as overcomers of sin, the world, and the devil, and to remain faithful to him at all costs, which includes holding out the gospel to others, because that's a thing Satan cannot resist. Release the gospel to people you know and love. For you, it may be one or two people. For others, it's 
maybe tens or hundreds or thousands. And then the gospel will do the work through the Holy Spirit. The devil can't stop that. And, and trusting that he'll make all things right in the end. Um, uh, and and whether one whether we think that one view is more accurate than the other, we just know that Scripture, all every time last things are written about in Scripture, it's a motivation for faithful living and an anchor for hope. That because the resurrection is true, so will the second coming. Um, and let me finish with this quote by John Frame. So far as I can see, Every biblical passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose, not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience. Good stuff. Well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to catching you guys next week with part two, some more thoughts. What's up with Revelation part two next week coming at you. The rapture, why I want to be left behind. All right. Hey, thank you guys for hanging with us again. It's always a pleasure. We'll catch you guys next week on the Ask LSE podcast.